welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. It's the end of 2019 and what a year for podcasts it has been. We've been to libraries, we've talked about Japanese classics, we've covered Iris Murdoch, we've talked to Young Chang, we've talked to Jeanette Winterson, we've talked to Diana Evans, we've been to Iceland, we've been to Liverpool, we've asked if Brexit is sexist. We've asked if we need to reinvent motherhood. We've talked to Zowie Ashton. We've talked to Ian McEwan. It's been absolutely incredible. Picking two episodes to feature in our 2019 roundup was uh, brutal. Uh, it was really, really hard to pick, uh, but I thought I'd just pick out two um, podcasts that I thought were particularly great and also represent two topics that not only um, globally I think we're all thinking about, but also uh, in the vintage office we're, we're constantly talking about and debating and, and thinking more deeply about. One of them is the idea of dystopia, uh, what a dystopia constitutes, who is hurt by dystopia, whether we live in one right now, and the other is the environment. So in this episode, we're taking two excerpts from those conversations. And I also asked uh, the two editors of those books discussed to come on and talk about their significance and, and why we champion them. Uh, and then also at the end, I've asked those editors to give you some recommendations of books coming out in 2020. So you can start planning your very important TBR lists right now. First we're going into the forest and we're going to be talking uh, to Richard Powers about his incredible book The Overstory but before that I want you to hear from editor Alex um, all about what he loves about the book and giving you a little bit of context for Richard's incredible body of work. Hi I'm Alex, I'm an editor at Vintage. When I first read The Overstory one of the things that really hits you about it is that it changes your view of of, our, of your kind of relationship with nature. I think um, we spend so much time kind of sitting in the office looking at trees, um, but actually it makes you realize there's a much kind of wider world um, out there than, than just us. Um, and it's kind of an amazingly beautiful and exhilarating story. Um, Emma Thompson puts it better than me. Uh, she said recently that the overstory is a mind-opening fiction and it c connects us all in a very positive way to the things we have to do if we want to regain our planet. Um, and seeing so many new readers and uh, kind of champions for Richard's writing around the overstory, we thought it was only right to bring out some beautiful new editions of uh, four of Richard's other novels with jackets by our creative director, Suzanne Dean, um, The Time of Our Singing, The Echo Maker, The Goldbug Variations, and Galatea 2.2. And they cover um, kind of an amazing range of topics from family and music to science and um, kind of the dark world I suppose if you if you start forgetting who you are and what that means um, yeah so you should definitely read them if you've enjoyed the overstory thank you to Alex for giving us that little excerpt and now uh, to a clip from the interview with Richard Powers I just wanted to talk in general about the, the the structure and the kind of framing of the book. So so obviously there's this normal fiction, there's nature writing, there's this very serious science nonfiction about trees, and then there's also often a few books that have um, nature as a metaphor or, or in the background. But I feel like this is one of the first books that I've personally read where nature's been in the foreground and has kind of been the centre of the book. What made you make that choice? And is it a new one? Because <laughs> it's definitely one of the first <coughs> books that I've read like that, but I was wondering if... You know, yeah. as you're speaking, I'm delighted because I did want to extend the range of the traditional literary fiction to take as its subject matter not just the agency and 
conflicts and crises and drama and potentials of human agents, mm. but to push it beyond uh, into the realm of the non-human. Uh, so I'm delighted that it comes across as a book where nature is not simply an aesthetic extension of of our individual uh, commodity-driven life. Mm. You know, not not just an excursion away from the life that we live, but an urgent. Um, active, uh, uh, motive-rich uh, uh, world uh, that we need to come back to. And that required telling the story in a slightly different way. You ask whether it's, it, it seems to me like a new kind of fiction. Uh, it is and it isn't. If you measure it against the last uh, century or two of traditional novel, those kinds of books that have emphasized uh, two kinds of crises, uh, internal crises, uh, a person split against themselves, uh, his or herself, mm -hmm. in, their, in their interior values, or uh, social or inter interpersonal crises of one person's values going to war with another person's values. It does represent an excursion into a third kind of drama, which is human will versus non-human will. And we have not seen a lot of that in, in recent years. However, if you contextualize it against the entire history of storytelling and mm. myth-making and, and, and human narrative, it's actually a return to the baseline kinds of stories that we told ourselves all the time as we positioned ourselves in the world. This idea that uh, there are other living creatures, enormous, willful, uh, full of surprises, operating on enormous, uh, majestic time frames. Mm. This would have been a given for for a lot of human stories over the course of millennia. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And and you've written—is it nine characters in total that you're taking the perspective of? How can you tell us a little bit about what we might encounter right. in the book of his nine? Well, you referenced uh, the structure of the book, and uh, mm. this came to me rather late in the in the um, creation of the book. But I realized that rather than trying to tell the story as a straight chronology, jumping mm. back and forth between quite a few protagonists in yeah. the whole <laughs> novel of this uh, of any length, um, that I ran the risk of losing readers along the way. So instead, I decided to uh, tell each of these individual protagonists' backstories separately, mm. as if they were indeed short stories. In fact, the unsuspecting reader uh, picking up this book. Uh, would be forgiven for uh, getting 100 pages in and thinking this is actually an anthology of short stories. Yeah. It's not a novel whatsoever. Um, it takes a while for that section, which I call Roots, mm. to come together yeah. into the next section, which I call Trunk. Yeah. So the history, the, uh, uh, the, the impulses, the, the, the formative dramas of mm. these individual characters seem to be uh, isolated, mm. they seem to be unconnected, just as uh, when you look at a forest uh, uh, up until recently, uh, we w all would have been forgiven for thinking that uh, the forest is filled with these individual trees that don't have a lot to do with one another, uh, but in fact uh, as we now know about forests with both over-the-air signaling and underground mycorrhizal connections. There are no individuals in a forest. Mm. Uh, there are only n networks and communities. As 
the case uh, is in the forest, so in my book, these characters who uh, begin the story without any sense of one another come together and uh, shape each other's destinies and, and mm -hmm. uh, join together into a central narrative, um, some more tightly connected to that narrative than others, but, uh, but all of them bound together in this uh, reciprocal, mm -hmm. interdependent community uh, of human beings yeah. who uh, uh, belatedly in some cases and uh, um, perennially in other cases uh, come to realize how closely their fate is uh, tied to, inextricably tied to non-human creatures, particularly trees. Yeah, I, I loved the, the 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 slow like reveal of the different characters' mm. stories, and I kind of felt like it was almost like rings yes. of of yeah. life just kind of slowly building That's building right. your way in. But then, and well, not to give too much away, but ending with the section on seeds was amazing because obviously right. you'd think, well, we'll start a book about trees with seeds. But That's um, right. um, another thing that people have often, you know, this is like new science talking about this kind of interconnectedness of trees and how they talk to each other and, and al almost socialists yes. <laughs> living under socialism. Right. Um, researching the book, did, did you start feeling differently about your country, about America? Because obviously that it's, it's driven by capitalism and, and individualism. That's right. Did, did you, you obviously must have had opinions about that before writing, but did that change as you were writing? My, my lament uh, about my country's uh, doubling down on a kind of uh, individualism and a kind of willful human exceptionalism, exceptionalism did intensify over the course of writing the book. However, since I, uh, my reading took me back uh, into the past, uh, I also came away as I read about all imaginable interactions between humans and non-humans on the North American continent over the course of a couple hundred years. I also came away with a new appreciation for how American history, how rich American history is in the uh, alternative tradition of mm. utopian community, um, uh, agrarian awareness of the, of, of the land, uh, an intense uh, commitment to long duration time. Uh, all of these values that are so hard to see now, uh, I, I did uh, want to weave my story around a foundation, a legacy that could be revived, a way of thinking about our place here that is already in the history of the country, um, that comes back into the fore in this remarkable time period uh, during the late 90s and early 2000s in, uh, in America, and particularly in the Pacific Northwest, mm. where uh, ordinary Americans who would not themselves ever have considered uh, activism or uh, you know, uh, s uh, confrontational politics uh, begin to realize that there, there is some legacy, both social and natural, that we are in danger of losing and that it, it basically radicalizes these people and turns them uh, into people with a, a new cause. Yeah, reluctant uh, activists. Reluctant <laughs> activists, I guess that's a lovely yeah. way to put it. Um, I, I, I loved the book and, and what, you know, I think it's it's a great um, 
uh, kind of flagship for the the argument that long books are important you know mm. and it is i think for some people they're like oh that's a long book um was there any point where you were like wanting to bow to to editing it down or was the intention to make it this long and perhaps also what i what i um i've seen a few of your interviews where you talk about uh our perspective on time right. <laughs> you know and being right. that impatient and like wanting to get you know maybe a message across in 200 pages right. <laughs> did, did right. that play into this like trees and and length and, and attention span well let me say first that I did edit it down. Okay. <laughs> <Quite this is> <laughs> <laughs> you think it's longer, 500 pages. Uh, Director's cut is yes, potentially a right. lot longer. Uh, but nevertheless, even even with relentless editing, I, I think I probably took out about a third of the total length. So half again what the wow. what the book was, uh, you know, mm. what the book is now, yeah. uh, went away. It is uh, still, however, a sequoia. Uh, and there, there, there is something to say for uh, having a large pool of protagonists who are so very different, mm. coming at this question of taking the non-human seriously from very different angles. And if you are to give them justice and, and de- develop them in a way that's uh, uh, effectively compelling to the reader, they each need room to breathe. But I think your other, the, your other point probably uh, is also exceptionally salient. When two of these nine characters find themselves at the top of a redwood that is in danger of being cut, and they are now um, as high above the earth as a, as a football pitch is long, uh, and they're... they're They've made made a home on a nine by nine foot uh, raft at the top of this tree, this tree that's as wide as a house and almost as old as Jesus. Mm. I mean, there something happens to them both in the presence of this creature, which could disappear tomorrow. That was Richard Powers on The Overstory. If you would like to listen to the whole episode, it's available on our Vintage Books podcast feed. Do go back and listen because the whole conversation is amazing. Um, Next up, we are talking about The Testaments uh, by Margaret Atwood. If you have not heard about it, uh, what planet have you been living on? Uh, It is the very, very long-awaited sequel to the 1985 novel The Handmaid's Tale. And on the week of release, I was very excited to read it. Couldn't contain myself, in fact. I gathered together a group of women uh, for a little book club to talk about our reactions to the Testaments and our initial feelings about The Handmaid's Tale. So here is a clip from that. We're mainly talking about The Handmaid's Tale. If you want to hear what we thought about the Testaments, do tune in and listen to the whole episode because it's such a fun one and there's such varied amount of views and opinions and feelings uh, about the world that Margaret Atwood had created. It's it's incredible. They really did give an amazing amount of meaty intellectual thought for me to um, feast on and I'm still thinking about that conversation. I think we got really deep with it. But before I play that clip, here is editor Becky talking about the impact of the Testaments and what it was like to work on it on its first release into the world. I'm Becky Hardy and I'm an editor at Chatter and Windus. And one of my highlights of the year was definitely publishing Margaret Atwood's The Testaments. I think the moment that it all really happened for the team that was working on that book was when we saw the South Bank in London completely lit up in this extraordinary neon testament screen. And I think that was the moment that we knew that we were dealing with something that had turned into 
a phenomenon that was bigger than a book, bigger than a normal book anyway. Another really big moment was seeing the fashion shoot by Tim Walker in the Sunday Times Style magazine, which saw Margaret dressed up in various high fashion catwalk items um, and also with these big grey hair extensions. And she looked so happy and like she was having so much fun. And we'd certainly never seen her in those kinds of outfits or in that kind of setting before. And it was a really fantastic moment. Another particular favourite was seeing for the first time the writer Anne Enright's review in The Guardian. It's a very, very long, very detailed, extremely thoughtful, extremely positive review, which ended on a line that went something like, to read this book is to feel the world turning. And if you've been working on a book for a long time, you know, been when we'd all been working on it for over a year, seeing it coming out in the world in these kinds of ways was really powerful, exciting, and kept us all really charged up and going. Thank you to Becky for that little excerpt. We are now going to hear the roundtable discussion. Hello, I'm Jessica Graham and I'm a bookseller. I have an independent bookshop in Primrose Hill in North London. Hi, I am Salma Fliechentart. I am a social media producer and also have a YouTube channel called Books and Quills. Hi, I'm Helen Lewis. I'm a staff writer at The Atlantic. And yeah, I just read quite a lot of books. That's my qualification, <laughs> I guess. I just really like the book. <laughs> I like paper. Um, so I thought at first we could talk, before we get into the book, talking a little bit about um, our personal relationship to uh, The Handmaid's Tale. Um, I think, like, we're, like, at this point in its kind of prolific kind of nature, it's, it's been on curriculums for a long time. People have been talking about it for a long time. This that we've been waiting 35 years for this sequel that we kind of didn't know was coming. Um, so can we go around and talk about the first time we read the book or heard about the book and, and how we felt about it? Yeah, I first read it when I was in my teens. It was on our uh, curriculum. And uh, the things I noticed then are not the same things I noticed when I reread it before the, te- the Testaments came out. Um, the thing I noticed this time reading it was about how interested Margaret Atwood is in, in language. And there is, you know, every time an interesting word is used, Offred kind of hangs on it, you know, sort of says household, head of the heart, you know, house. He holds the house, and it's and that I found really moving. Having spent quite a bit of time in doing journalism and actually going to places in the developing world where girls don't necessarily read, is that actually the violence of taking language away from someone. And you know, Offred is so desperate to read. She's so she loves playing Scrabble with the commander. You know, she, finding Nelite Bastardo's Carborundum or whatever an illegitimate mm-hmm. Carborundum written in the the wardrobe is such a big moment to her. She's sort of hungry for words, um, and so I think it's it's a that is a mark to me of a truly great novel is that you can come back to it again and again and take different things out of it each time. I feel like I'm quite a newbie when it comes to this book because I initially hadn't heard of it before. I grew up in the Netherlands and it wasn't until a few years back that it kind of caught my eye. I'm a huge dystopian and apocalyptic book fan and that was one of the books that people would always say I can't believe you haven't read this you would absolutely love it so is it not that much of a big deal in the Netherlands it must be but I just hadn't I just hadn't come across it in the same way yes and so uh, I read it two years back and while I was reading it my thoughts the whole time was why haven't I read this before this is Mm. like the perfect book for me um and was really I guess a bit surprised by the way the story was told as in like I loved um, that is told out of order and you just get drip-fed all these little bits of, of the history. Um, and before I read it as well, I thought it was a lot more historical than it was going to be because I had seen one of the book covers before and that is all I knew. Um, so that was a surprise as well. 
And I didn't know when it was written when I read it. And when I checked, I was absolutely shocked that it was written in the 80s because mm. I was so convinced it must have been written, I don't know, about 10 years ago or even yeah, just really a few years in. back. Yeah. Yes. And so it left yeah, a really big impression on me. I bet you did. I first read it in 1985, which was the year I graduated, in fact, and I was an English student. So the year it came out. It was a hot book. (laughs) Of course, it was written in 1984, which carries all those connotations. And um, I think at the time, because I was young then, I was just struck by how privileged I'd been to have an education. Um, And then I reread it very recently um, for this. And like you, it was almost a completely different book for me, Mm. you know, 34 years on or whatever it is. Um, But what struck me really profoundly was how the iconography of the book has permeated our popular culture you know the look the image of the women in their dress and how that's become a symbol Mm. um, for women's feelings about injustice in that time Um, but also sadly how little has changed so you know we still have enormous violence against women there are still many girls in the world who are never taught to read and so how potent and current it still is and I think because of 1984 and all the other dystopian novels that have since been published it's important now to view it in the tradition of those novels that will have a long and lasting life. I think that's something that I hadn't fully clocked when I read it the first time was how resonant of 1984 it is. In mm. fact, in particularly structurally, right, with the idea of the appendix, mm. which kind of says this is after this civilization has fallen, which is exactly what happens with the dictionary on Newspeak at the end of 1984. And there, from that, you learn that actually some bit of Winston Smith has survived. And the same thing with this one, you learn that some bit of Offred has survived, and actually you can kind of guess at the identity of the commander. And it's something that I think that would picks up really well. I mean, the, the name of the new book being The Testaments, right, is exactly about the idea that you have to tell your story, that actually being able to record it, again, it comes back to this idea that mm. without writing, you don't have the ability to make a mark and make a mark in history, which for women, I think, is incredibly important. I also think it's kind of funny. I wonder if it's a little outward joke, because you, t- you know the idea where the word testify comes from, right? Was that you were supposed to, in a, in a court, put your hand on your testicles yeah. and swear. <laughs> so it, there's a, there's I a don't know, don't know that I was like, yeah, I know where it is. from the Bible and that, no. <laughs> so it's like, here's something that's really important to me that I'm swearing on. And I wonder if that's a that's a kind of hidden joke, because, it, you know, it, it, that has, a, again, an incredible resonance about the fact that we men's testimony is believed more, right? So mm-hmm. in um, Iran, traditionally, places like that, you know, you needed, well, I think there's a reference to it in this book, actually, about, you know, you needing four men... Yeah. You know, for and and actually, a woman's word is only worth a quarter of a man's, mm. and and that's something that permeates all of this. Is about the idea of women writing, women reading, women being able to be remembered in history, and it's something that's indefinitely in dialogue with 1984, but takes it in a particularly mm. female direction. Yeah. Another thing that really stuck out to me was how I'd I'd read the book when I was maybe like 16, 17, reread it a couple of times, but hadn't read it for a long time. Listened to the audiobook just before I read the Testaments, and I realised that because of maybe the other books I'd been consuming in that time I'd romanticised Offred and I thought she was Mm. braver than she was I thought she was more feminist than she was I thought she was more angry about the regime than she was and that was like quite uncomfortable but also I think like part of what makes Margaret Atwood amazing is that she has a lot of sympathy for these um, women I'm sure we'll talk about when we talk about the testaments these women who aren't really are like kick-ass feminist heroes they're like women that have, have been through trauma and aren't always that keen on the universal um, experience but they're more concerned with their personal experience mm-hmm. which is, is really understandable um, but yeah that kind of scared me <laughs> a little bit what really struck me about the book is that balance in the character between 
just doing the day-to-day and just making sure that you're safe and being really scared that you're being overheard all the time. And then also having days where you just go, I can't believe this is happening. Like, there must be something we, we, we can do. This is ridiculous. Mm. And kind of her flip-flopping between that, even from minute to minute. Yeah, definitely. One of the, the um, developments um, that comes so clearly in the Testaments, I think, is the fact that by this time we've moved on in time and the women have become... Um, slightly more able to use their voices to collude with one another Mm -hmm. and you begin to get the sense of this resistance being something active rather than just the one voice, the one person. Um, And that gives it a bit more hope. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. But I think you're also completely right to pick up on its very uneasy relationship with feminism. And and Margaret Atwood has always said she's, you know, personally, it's Mm. a label that she finds really difficult. Mm. And revisiting the first novel now, you really see about how much there is an argument with second wave feminism in it. And actually, the voice of the commander saying, you know, were you happy before, you know, when you were having plastic surgery and wearing shoes that you couldn't walk in and slicing yourself up and, you know, porn was so freely available, which seems kind of an odd thing to that you think, was everyone in, in the 1980s? 80s worried about porn this is before even kind of internet mm. pornography was a was a thing but it's I think and that's what I find unique about it as a dystopia and that it effectively says well hang on a minute you weren't in utopia before like what was the thing that you lost and actually for women progress is always an interesting kind of move forward and steps back and actually it, it you know women have moved from one dystopia to another essentially in, in the handmaid's tale I think that's a really difficult complicated argument to make that you know actually why do some people collude with Gilead because actually feminists may have in you know unwittingly set up the idea of a liberal society as something that needed to be fought against yeah. and they might have been complicit really unwittingly in in the formation of Gilead because they there's I forgot as well when rereading it how much I love Moira <laughs> her best friend <laughs> yes. uh, and also her mum who all sound like the people that I'd want to to narrate the book and it was almost like a resistance for me to be like okay you've you're, you've got Offred you've got to deal with Offred and yeah I think it's interesting to see those characters as as quite like from a, from an outsider's perspective that might be how people see me <laughs> and I'm like am I part of you know mm. is is are things moving too fast too quickly and it's it's having the opposite effect what really shocked me in The Handmaid's Tale was, I think it's Aunt Lydia saying, remembering, you know, all the things you read in the newspaper, all the terrible things that happen to women, and they kind of try and twist it in a way where it's like, yeah. well, it was incredibly terrible before, and obviously you're having a, this is a better deal for you right now. And as you're reading it, you can almost see how, if you say that enough to someone, they might start believing it. Yeah. Even though while you're reading it, you obviously can see that they're not oh, yeah. in an ideal been situation. Yeah, big argument. I always hmm. take idea with this idea of chivalry not being harmless, but it actually is a way of controlling women because it's saying that essentially men are kind of base and violent and horrible, and actually we need to have all these structures to control women hmm. in order to protect you. It's for your own good, hmm. and I think that's something that she picks up mm-hmm. really brilliantly. Yeah, it's this tension almost between um, being civilized and covering yourself up, but actually admitting that we have base needs and and that men are just naturally like that. So that's how we're going to structure society around these. Natural animal needs, mm. and you're like, that's not civilized. Yeah, that's everything seems structured around that in the in this yeah. society. Yeah, it's yeah. really scary. Um, so to move on to the testaments, um, how did you guys feel when you heard that there was a sequel? Were you nervous? Were you excited? Were you a bit surprised? Because I just thought there never would be one. I was horrified. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> well. That was our book club episode on the Testaments. I will leave a link in our show notes and you can go back on our feed and listen to it if you'd like to hear the whole conversation and hear what we thought about the Testaments. Very important. Um, Now, on to 2020. What should you be putting on your wish list? What should you be watching out for? Well, I always trust editors. They know the best. Writers, the best books to watch out for. 
Um, so here's some recommendations for 2020 from them. Next year, I'm really looking forward to Anne Tyler's new novel, which is called Redhead by the Side of the Road, which features a perfect Anne Tyler character called Micah, who's fumbling his way through life and love. It's always a huge pleasure publishing her novels because she has so many eager fans waiting for each new one. I'm also looking forward to a book called Stranger in the Shogun City by Amy Stanley, which tells the story of a woman in 19th century Japan. Um, this woman goes to seek her fortune in the city of Edo, which is the name of the city of Tokyo before it became Tokyo. Who goes to seek her fortune in the city of Edo before it became Tokyo. It's a history, but so much more than that. It's told really, really beautifully, and it reads just like a novel. And this is just one woman's story, but it shows how important women were in the growth and progress of cities, which isn't a story that we normally hear. Can I pick two? Okay, so the first one is a book I'm publishing in August called Epitaphs for Underdogs by Andrew Zapesi. Um, Ian McEwan is a, is a huge fan of this book and it's really exciting because it's a, it's a kind of dystopian novel about a man going into prison in Hungary in the 1960s. Um, but what's really important about it now is that it, it shows us a kind of what happens when the state starts clamping down and um, kind of what you might do in the middle of a political crisis relevant for today uh, but before that it's on the one of the Harvest Hecker books um, and use braised pork uh, it follows a woman it starts with um, this woman sees her husband dead in the bathroom uh, but it will not go kind of where that sounds like it's gonna go it's not a murder mystery uh, she kind of is in set in Beijing and she tries to find direction in her life uh, and ever since it came in I've been completely obsessed with it so I'm excited that people will finally be able to read it it'll be out in the world thank you so much for listening to the vintage podcast what was your favorite episode uh, from 2019 do let us know you can tweet us at vintage books or chat to us on instagram at vintage books thank you so much for listening all year um, we really really appreciate it and we hope you'll join us in 2020 for an equally if not more exciting roster of voices and explorations and bookish thoughts I've been Lena Norms and until next time.